It is a privilege to be able to share with you this morning uh, from the Word of God. And before I do that, let's, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, this morning we, we sang that hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Lord, there was that line in there that said, Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I praise thee, I'll praise thee as I ought. Lord, we do confess that our, the efforts of our heart are weak, that our thoughts are cold. Lord, we ask that we would see you as you are, and that we would praise you as we ought. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 127. Uh, so if you're open your Bibles to Psalm 127, it's on page 749 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to read the psalm, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. I have lots and lots of thoughts. We're just going to really concentrate on the first couple verses of this psalm, and we'll, we'll bring in some, some of the other parts as well. But we're going to start with the psalm and, and depart from there. So Psalm 127. the song of Solomon and it goes like this unless the Lord builds the house they labor in vain who build it unless the Lord guards the city the watchman keeps awake in vain it is vain for you to rise up early to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep behold children are a gift of the Lord the fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Did you know that God is in the construction business? God is, in his nature, a builder. Right, Genesis 1.1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God built everything. In Job, we read that he laid the foundation of the earth. And he tells Isaiah that he stretched out the heavens. All things, says the Apostle John, speaking of Jesus' role in creation, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's John 1.3. So if you can see it, if you can touch it, taste it, hear it, smell it, if you can feel it in your heart, understand it with your mind, if it exists, it fundamentally owes its existence to God. God is more than a builder. He is the builder with a capital B. Now God's building activities are, are part of a grand plan, something I'm calling God's cosmic construction project, if you're following along with the outline in your bulletin. God's cosmic construction project. The ultimate goal of this project is, is to display his glory, to proclaim his excellencies. To accomplish that goal, God has been building on many different levels, building on scales great and small. Just think of it. He built this ginormous universe. It's so big that even at the speed of light, it would take you 93 billion years to cross it. But he built this universe out of particles that are so small that it's physically impossible for us to see them. So from the unimaginably big to the unimaginably small and everything in between, the Lord God made it all. 
But his construction project doesn't stop at the inorganic, this impersonal kind of level of stars and planets and particles. The physical existence that God has built is merely a platform for something much, much more. All the physical, inorganic creation was built as part of a plan to build something living and something spiritual and something very personal. We see that in, in Scripture, God is investing himself personally in his creation. He enters into it to create and touch individual lives and to build a kingdom, his kingdom, to bring about his glorious and eternal purpose. For starters, God built man. And the Scripture tells us he built man from the dust of the earth, getting his hands dirty, you might say, and breathing into man's very nostrils the breath of life. And he made man in his image, sharing with him his communicable attributes like personhood, the ability to relate and to love and to think, to will, to imagine and create, and to work and to himself be a builder. But God's cosmic construction plan did not end in the second chapter of Genesis. That was just the beginning. All down through history, God has been building. For roughly 2,500 years, if you start counting with Noah and end with Christ, God built the nation of Israel. And that project was really the foundation for the next. From the nation of Israel, God brought forth his church and has been building it for the last 2,000 years. But as scriptures tell us, with the Lord, a thousand years is like one day. So Israel and the church, the church on earth, are just the first couple of days worth of God's work of preparing a kingdom that will last a whole lot longer than a measly few thousand years. God is building an eternal kingdom. This eternal kingdom that God is building is God's own house. Think about it. It's the place where God will be worshipped forever and ever. We often think of heaven as our eternal home, and it is. And we speak of going to heaven as our entering glory, and we will. But there's a bigger purpose, a greater reason for heaven than that it is our home where we will be in glory. Remember what Jesus called the place where we will be? He called it my Father's house in John 14, too. Heaven is God's house, the place where he will dwell, as it tells us in Revelation 21. And that's the ultimate end, the true aim of God's cosmic construction project, building his one true house, his eternal kingdom. But what has God chosen to build his kingdom out of? What are the building blocks in God's house? Scripture tells us that we are. Peter tells us that we are the living stones out of which God is building a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to him. That's 1 Peter 2.5. John tells us in Revelation that Jesus made us to be a kingdom to God. Revelation 1.6. And Paul tells us that we are God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple and a dwelling of God. It's Ephesians 2.21. So the amazing thing is that God has chosen to build his kingdom out of us. He has chosen us to be the bricks of which his house is built. So God's grand plan, his cosmic construction project, so grand in scale that it spans billions of light years of distance and thousands of years of time, has as its culmination the assembly of his holy and glorious and everlasting kingdom that will be built using us as its building blocks. But here's the big question. How can we, sorry, unholy, dingy little short-lived creatures that we are, become the stones in God's grand, holy, glorious, and everlasting house? I think God has some work to do, some prep work to do on us before we're ready. He's got some stone changing, some stone cutting, 
some stone polishing to do. And I think Psalm 127 gives us God's plan for that work in a very neat and concise package. So let's take a look uh, at what it has to say. First of all, I wanted to talk about what is the house in Psalm 127. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So what is exactly the house that's being referred to here? Well, the house here in Psalm 127 really can be understood at a number of different levels. We can take it to refer to the physical temple in Jerusalem. That would make a lot of sense because this psalm was written by Solomon, possibly written by Solomon, possibly written by David. And Solomon is the one who built the temple. Um, and David is the one who wanted to build a temple, uh, as we read just, just a few moments ago. He wanted to build a temple, and he, in fact, actually began the initial preparations for the temple's construction. So either of these men who may have written this psalm certainly would have had God's temple in view, acknowledging from somewhat different perspectives that unless the Lord built his house on earth, his temple, its construction would not have any purpose or meaning and, and might never be accomplished. But there are also clear connect connections to construction projects on both larger and smaller scales in this psalm. Regarding the larger scale, if we look at the second half of verse 1, it speaks of guarding a city, which brings to mind not just the temple, but the city of Jerusalem, and by extension, the entire nation of Israel. So the nation of God's chosen, the nation among whom God himself promised to dwell, God's house on earth, could also be in view here. And from a New Testament perspective, we would understand that this extends also to the church, the assembly of all believers, past, present, and future. As God's eternal house, the people among whom and within whom he dwells now and for all eternity. But we also see indications that Psalm 127 refers to building of a house on a smaller scale. In fact, the majority of the psalm, verses 3, 4, and 5, speak of the, blessings, uh, the blessing of children. So the house could refer to one's nuclear family, and this would extend to the smallest scale, to the level even of a single individual, because it is the individual who is built up as a result of being blessed with children. So that, as the psalm says, he will not be ashamed when he speaks with his enemy at the city gate there in the end of verse 5. And it is the individual who should not get stressed out and rise early and work late, but should rest in the Lord, because as it says, the Lord gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So really, I think the psalm covers all these bases. I think it recognizes that the building up of the individual is connected to the building up of the family and the temple and the building up of the city and the building up of the nation, as well as to the building up of the eternal house of God. And I believe that God is at work in all these levels to build his own house, his eternal kingdom. So I believe that this psalm can be applied at all these levels to help us understand what God is doing and, and how we can and should be involved. This morning, I just want to focus on the first level, the basic building blocks, us, the bricks in the wall, wall of God's great eternal house, us, the individual believer. Each one of us, each one of these stones, each brick is itself a house, because each one is itself the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God is at work to make us fit for his indwelling. You know, somebody once told me, God don't make no junk. And I think John's des uh, description of the construction of the holy city, the new Jerusalem in Revelation, supports this idea. The materials of that city, as we know, are precious stones, emerald, sapphire, amethyst. The gates are pearls, the streets are gold. Similarly, when it comes to building his spiritual house, God doesn't use just any materials. He needs holy building blocks to build his holy temple. So the little houses, that's us, 
that he stacks up to build into his big spiritual house need to be up to the highest of specifications. He needs pure, sincere, blameless stones. He needs loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, self-controlled stones. He needs stones that are conformed to the shape of Jesus. And God has a plan, a blueprint, if you will, for the shaping and building of individuals to make them fit for his use. So this morning I want to look at Psalm 127 from the perspective of building ourselves, our souls, our lives, our personal houses, so that they are fit to be part of God's great eternal house. So maybe you've heard of metamorphic rock. It's rock that has been transformed from its original state into a new state. This happens as a result of exposure to high temperatures and or high pressures. And when that happens, the internal structure and composition of these rocks is changed, and it changes their character. For example, crumbly sandstone can turn into something called quartzite. That's a rock that's actually harder than granite. I don't know if you have experience with sandstone. It can grumble in your hands. Uh, quartzite is harder than granite, and it's so hard and durable that people use it to make kitchen countertops. Well, God's plan for building each one of us, uh, each one of our little individual spiritual houses, for, for changing us into building blocks that are fit to be part of his great building, his holy temple, involves a metamorphosis. It involves a transformation. Jesus said, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Paul says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor covetous. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is 1 Corinthians 6. If anyone is in Christ, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, he is a new creature. The old passed away. Behold, new things have come. So there's a metamorphosis here. And God turns useless, weak, dead, crumbling sandstone into solid, strong, living, and enduring quartzite. God's metamorphic process, his plan for transforming people into stones fit for building his kingdom, has a name. Jesus, Peter, and Paul called it the gospel, the good news. But a thousand years before that, David and Solomon, they knew that same plan. And we can see it right here in Psalm 127. Looking at the first two verses of Psalm 127, I see a threefold process. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Two verses, two verses with a threefold process, a threefold process that turns sinful creatures into pure, sincere, blameless sons and daughters of God. The first part of this process I'm calling capitulation. And that, what I mean by that is surrender. We need to capitulate, to surrender to the truth that without God we can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to build our houses. Without God, we can do nothing that will accomplish this metamorphosis, this transformation process, the passing away of the old and the coming of the new. These things are only accomplished by the power of God. The second part of the process is collaboration. That is, we need to labor. We have a responsibility to work with God to build our houses. Now, this may sound like it's in contradiction with the first part of the process, but I assure you it is not. We can do nothing without him, but we nevertheless bear responsibility for doing, for following him, worshiping him, and serving him by submitting to him, living holy lives, and engaging the spiritual doctrines and enduring trials. The third part of that process I'm calling celebration. 
That is, in our capitulation and in our collaboration, we find celebration. We find peace and joy in living in and for Christ. Yes, life can be a grind. Yes, we face trials and tribulations. And for some, life can literally be torture. But the good news of the gospel, and it's right here in Psalm 127, is that because God is the builder of our houses, we can have the peace and joy that comes from knowing that he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. This morning, I just want to focus. That, that's a whole lot to chew, to chew at once. I just want to focus on the first step. Step one, what I'm calling capitulation. So here's a little bit more about what I mean by capitulation. The psalm says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. The building of our spiritual houses, our metamorphosis into living stones fit for his temple, involves capitulation to God. It requires surrender to him in the sense that we recognize and acknowledge and continually affirm that without him we are helpless. I'll say that again. It requires surrender to him in the sense that we recognize and acknowledge and continually affirm that without him we are helpless. This morning I want to look at three arenas in which we are helpless. We are helpless to save ourselves, we are helpless to sanctify ourselves, and we are helpless to glorify ourselves. These three things, and they're there in your notes, salvation, sanctification, and glorification are the results of God's metamorphosis of our lives, of, or God's building our houses. I want to share a few things that the Lord has been impressing upon me regarding what it means to be helpless to accomplish these things, and what it means to be wholly dependent on God to accomplish these things in our lives. I don't think that we really truly understand the depths of this truth, that unless it is God building our houses, all the blood, sweat, and tears in the world are a complete and utter waste of time and effort. I think we don't understand that because we are, at our cores, prideful. We just can't shake the natural inclination to be self-centered, self-reliant, and self-satisfied. No matter how much we might speak words to the contrary, no matter how many praise the Lord's we may say when somebody compliments us, somehow, somewhere, down deep, we still think things like, if I did it, I deserve credit. A good thing I'm around or nothing would get done. And I've got to keep the wheels of my own life turning or I'm going to get nowhere. I think it just comes naturally. It's pride. If you're out there this morning and you don't think this way, I want you to go ahead and give yourself a pat on the back. Aren't you just so proud of how proud you're not? Aren't we all at some level like the preacher who said, son, let me tell you about humility because I've got it. <clears throat> so we do good works and we're proud of ourselves. We Christians, no matter how many times we've recited Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, no matter how much we claim that we believe in total depravity, somehow we manage to take pride in our works, pride in our spiritual development, even pride in our faith, pride in our belief. Go ahead and ask yourself, why should God let me into his heaven? Is the first thing that pops into your mind because I believe in Jesus? Well, what's wrong with that, you might ask? Well, con contrast it with these answers. Because Jesus died to pay the, the price I couldn't afford. Or because he made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering on my behalf so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Do we need to believe in him? Yes. Do we need to trust in him, follow him, obey him? Yes. But do we really truly understand how wholly dependent we are on the work of God in our lives that makes it possible for us to do these things? Do we really understand how completely dependent we are on him to build us into spiritual houses 
fit for his dwelling. It starts with salvation. We're going to look at God's work in building our salvation. It is God's work alone that saves us, and we are wholly dependent on him for our salvation. This is the fundamental truth of the gospel, of God's good news. But in our competitive, rat race, fast-paced, what good have you done for me in the last five minutes kind of world, it's easy to forget who has done the real work, the real work for our salvation, and who deserves all the credit. You know, growing up in a Christian home from a very early age, I came to understand God's accounting system, that my sin needed to be removed from my account, and that God credited my sins to Jesus' account so that he could pay for them in my place. And I believed in him and in this truth. I believed that he was the way and the truth and the life and that no one could come to the Father except through him. I put my trust in Jesus at a very early age. But in my mind, the emphasis was often on just that. Believe in Jesus, trust in him, come to him, follow him. And it's true, we need to do these things to be saved. But as I grew older, I think I matured and so did my understanding. In particular, as I grew older, I began to comprehend the seriousness of my sin and the depths of my depravity. As I committed sins, sins bigger than not cleaning my room when my mother asked me to or teasing my younger siblings. As I made more adult mistakes as a young adult, betraying a confidence, failing to follow through on a promise, allowing bitterness to to fester in in a relationship. I felt the weight of my sins, all of my sins, both big and small. And I began to truly understand that there was nothing I could do that could erase them. Nothing I could do that would wipe the slate clean, remove them from my record, or erase them from other people's memories, let alone erase my sin from God's memory. I began to identify with the plight of the unforgiving servant in Jesus' parable in in Matthew 18. The servant who owed the king 10,000 talents or the equivalent of 15 years wages. Who, when it came time to settle accounts with the king, fell on his face at the king's feet, utterly helpless to repay the debt he owed, begging for patience. But the only way out of the debt was for the king to have mercy on the servant and to simply forgive the debt, for the king to absorb that debt himself. Because of my sin and my ability to make it go away, the truth of this parable and of other scriptures became real to me. The truth of Titus 3.5, which tells us he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And the truth of Ephesians 2, which says, you were dead, dead in your sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. These truths became real to me. It's God's love. It's God's mercy. It's God's grace that saved me. God made me alive. God raised me up. God seated me in the heavenlies. God saved me so that he could put me on display as an example of the riches of his grace for ages to come. It's God, 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 God. God at work, not me. We are his workmanship. Salvation is in him, by him, and ultimately for him, for his glory. Think about it. In heaven, 
people are not going to be looking at me and at you for all eternity and saying, wow, what fine examples of Christian people. They're going to look at us and say, these are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. How rich is the Father's grace. How great is his loving kindness. So in salvation, in the new birth, it's not me, it's God. I'm not responsible for my being born again any more than I was for my being born the first time. So I have no reason to boast other than to boast in what the Lord has done. It's by his doing that I am in Christ who became to me the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 1. But it's not in our nature to see things this way. We are born with an ego, a self-consciousness, and a self-centeredness that keeps the focus on what we do. And generally, our culture trains us to think that we deserve to be rewarded according to our efforts. But somehow, in that calculus of what we have done and what we have accomplished and what we deserve, we put very little weight on the wrongs we have committed and highly overvalue the good that we have done. And we forget our desperate need for God's mercy. We become like what I call the self-justified man in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. This guy, although he was on his way to hell, was insistent that he deserved better. He insisted that he had earned some heavenly reward because he had lived an essentially good and honest life. He had done his best, and what more could anyone ask? This is what he says. He says, I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I'd done my best all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. I'm asking for nothing but my rights. I got to have my rights, see? He was insisting that he had been good enough, that he deserved to go to heaven. By his, it was his right. But the answer comes back from a citizen of heaven. Ironically enough, oh no, it's not as bad as that. You will not get your rights. You will get something far better. To which the self-justified man replies, I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. To which the citizen of heaven replies, then do at once ask for the bleeding charity. With a capital B and a capital C, bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. What we deserve, what we have earned, is only death. As we know, the wages of sin is death. But God, for free, gives us something we don't deserve, something we can't earn or buy or build for ourselves. He gives us his charity. and He does the work. He changes us. He makes us new creations. See, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So when it comes to the question of salvation, the question of, are you a Christian today? You need to answer the question, has the Lord built my house or am I still laboring under, under the delusion that I am building my own house? Thank you very much. In salvation, the Christian embraces capitulation to the Lord, full surrender to the truth that without him we can do nothing. Without God, we can do nothing to build our spiritual houses. This is a very clear and consistent teaching of Scripture concerning God's work in salvation. But this truth extends beyond our salvation, beyond our new birth. Once we have been converted, once we have been metamorphosized from dead stones to living stones, 
God's metamorphic process enters a second stage theologians call progressive sanctification. This is a gradual, ongoing process by which we are being made holy that involves a progressive changing of our hearts, a setting aside of sinful patterns, an engaging in good works, and an enduring of suffering. But can I tell you something? The truth remains that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You can't build your spiritual house. You can't make it holy unless God makes it holy for you. You can't make it holy by yourself. You can't will or work yourself to become all that God wants you to be. Nothing you do will count for anything if God is not at work in you to accomplish it. You need God to be at work in you to accomplish anything that is of any heavenly good. What's that I just said? I can't do good works. I need to be a Christian to do good. And even if I am a Christian, if I do things under my own steam, by the sweat of my own brow, it won't matter when it comes to my growth and holiness. It won't matter for the kingdom. Yep, you got me right. Now you might object. Even unbelievers can do good. They can care for and teach their children. They can honor their parents, love their spouses, help the poor, build hospitals, be good stewards of the earth, even donate money to a church. Aren't these good things? And when I do them, won't they count for something in heaven? When I do them as a Christian, don't they contribute to my sanctification? I think the answer is that none of these things, none of these good works count for anything if they are not done in Christ, if they are not done by the power of God in me. Solomon, as I mentioned, possibly the author of Psalm 127, the king who built God's house on earth, the temple in Jerusalem, was beginning to realize this when he wrote Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 2, he relates how he tried to work out what good he could do in his lifetime. And this is what he says. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I bought male and female slaves. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold. I became great and increased more than all who had preceded me. Thus, I considered all my activities which my hands had done. And he looks at all the activities that his hands had done and the labor which he had exerted. And what was his conclusion? And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He built his house, he built his kingdom, and yet at the end he decided that it was vanity, that it profited him nothing. What was Solomon's ultimate answer to this problem? The apparent worthlessness of the good works of his hands? The conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes is this. When all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Solomon, I think, was, was beginning to see the truth, truth that we can now more completely understand in the light of the gospel. And the truth is that, in fact, God will judge every action. The hidden things will be revealed. And what will God find? When everything that is hidden is revealed, God will find even the acts which we thought were good, are still contaminated by sin or lacking in purity of motivation. Think of David. He wanted to do a good thing, as we read this morning in our scripture reading. He wanted to build a temple for the ark, a house of God. And what, what did God tell him? You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Because he was a man of war, 
David was deemed unfit to build God's house. His hands too stained to serve the Lord in this way. Similarly, we are fundamentally compromised by sin. Every one of our acts, even the good ones, all our behavior is somehow contaminated by sin. Everything we do has the fingerprints of pride and self-centeredness on them. Will not everything we do then be found unworthy of contributing to our growth and holiness? Likewise, we can do all kinds of good things, but if they are not done with, with purity of motive, they count for nothing. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. How then can we make progress in our sanctification? Are we doomed to failure because of our fundamentally corrupt, sinful human nature? The good news of the gospel is that we are not doomed to failure. We are not condemned to striving after the wind, to living a vain life with no profit. And that's because God is building our house. I'm reminded of a story I once heard about Muhammad Ali, the famed heavyweight boxing champ. He was known for, how can I put it delicately, his lack of humility. Once the story goes, just before takeoff on an airplane flight, a stewardess instructed everyone to fasten their seatbelts and came to Ali and said, and noticed his seatbelt wasn't fastened and said, you know, buckle up. Ali's response was, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Reportedly, the quick-thinking stewardess replied, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> to me, this is a fitting picture of life in Christ. See, Ali could fly. He wasn't actually Superman, but he could fly. He couldn't do it on his own. But if he was on a plane, he could fly just fine. In the same way, we can do good. We can do truly pure and perfect and holy works that contribute to our sanctification, to the building of our spiritual houses. But we can't do it on our own. We need a supernatural power at work in us and through us to accomplish what God will judge as good and pure and right came across a, a short poem by John Bunyan that was along these lines. Uh, John Bunyan writes, Run, John, run, the law commands. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. We can do good. We can fly. But to do that, we need the wings that only the gospel gives us. We need the power of God, the Spirit of God, the love of God at work in us in order to accomplish anything, in order to grow in sanctification, in order to build our spiritual houses. And this brings us back to the idea of capitulation, of surrender, because God is telling us that we can't fly without him. We need to admit that we are not supermen and superwomen. We need to admit our utter dependency upon him, our need for him, acknowledging that we can't obey him, we can't grow in holiness, apart from his work in us. We need to admit that it is as Jesus said, apart from me, in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we need to receive the good news of the gospel, that if we abide in him, and his words abide in us, then whatever we ask of him, according to his will, will be done for us. 
and we will bear much fruit, and our Father in heaven will be glorified. Or as Paul puts it, we need to understand that to be a Christian is to be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. And the life which we now live, we live by faith in Jesus. The gospel brings us a completely different perspective to good works, to the process of sanctification. That unless God builds our house, they labor in vain who build it. Finally, we see the principle of capitulation to God's preeminence in the building process extends beyond this life and into the life to come. It extends to our glorification. Even in our glorification, there is capitulation to God's building of our spiritual houses. We get a taste of this in 2 Samuel 7, which we read uh, this morning. Here, David calls Nathan the prophet and expresses his discomfort with the fact that he is living in a nice, sturdy house, a house built of cedar, while the ark of God is housed in a simple tent. David wants to build a house for the ark, a house for God. Nathan, Nathan says, that sounds like a good idea to him. But that night, God speaks to Nathan with a message for David, which was in brief. I took you from the pasture. I made you king over Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I protected you and gave you victory over your, your enemies. And then there are promises. I will make your name great. I will give you rest from your enemies. And even more astounding, God says, David, are you the one who should build a house for me? Listen, I, the Lord, I declare that I will build a house for you. When you die, I will raise up your son after you, and I will establish his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What a remarkable turn of the tables. David, an earthbound king, wants to build an earthly house for the king of heaven. And God, the king of heaven, turns around and says, Look, I made you who you are. I have given you everything that you have. And then he promises to build David an everlasting house, a kingdom that never ends. Now we know that this promise is a prophecy that refers first to Solomon, David's son, and ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus, also the son of David, whose throne would be established forever and whose kingdom will never end. But it strikes me that here we also have a picture of salvation, sanctification, and glorification, and that all along the way, God is the one who is building David's house. We see salvation in the choosing and calling and conversion of David in verse 8. I took you from the pasture to be ruler over my people, God says. God fundamentally changed David's life. Then we see David's sanctification in verse 9. I have been with you and I have cut off all your enemies. God came alongside David and purified and protected his kingdom. And finally, we see glorification in verses 9 through 11 and verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7. I will make you a great name, God says. I will appoint you, appoint I will appoint a place for my people. I will build you a house, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. David has God to thank for everything, including the promise of future greatness in the presence of God. Similarly, similarly we know that God has promised us future greatness and glory forever. Paul writes in Romans 8.30 that those that God has predestined, he has called and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That the great God of the 
universe would condescend to glorify puny creatures like us is incomprehensible, but it is true nonetheless. Jesus promised his disciples, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What an awesome thought. Jesus is building houses for us in glory. What precisely that will look like, we don't really know. But Jesus, the carpenter's son, is building something better for us than we can possibly imagine. A place where God will dwell among us. A place where there will be no more sin or sickness or sorrow or pain or death. A place where we won't need the sun or even electricity because the glory of God and the Lamb will be its light. And I think it pretty much goes without saying that all these wonders can only be built by God. Unless God builds our heavenly house, we have no hope of ever seeing it. He deserves all the praise and all the glory for all that he has built. We see this in John's vision of heaven. What do the elders, clothed in white and enthroned around God's throne, do with their golden crowns in Revelation 4? They fall down before God and cast their crowns before his throne. And then what do they say? Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So all the way into eternity and forever and ever, we see this one truth being celebrated. God is the great builder of everything. He's the builder of our spiritual houses, the builder of our salvation, the builder of our sanctification, and the builder of our glorification. Because unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. How do we respond to this truth that unless God builds our house, we labor in vain? Well, if you are an unbeliever, if this is kind of all news, new news to you, the message this morning is clear. Capitulate completely to God's plan of salvation. Humble yourself before God. Confess your total depravity your total lack of ability to do anything to merit, earn, or buy your salvation. Your total inability to wipe clean the record of your evils. Recognize the poverty of your soul. Mourn over your sin. Confess your lack of ability and humbly kneel before the Lord your God, your maker, trusting in the work that he alone is able to do. He has already done all that is necessary for you, all that is necessary to save you, to forgive you, to wipe your slate clean. When Jesus lived the perfect life, suffered the wrath of God, died in your place on the cross, and rose again from the dead. Acknowledge that this is true and there is no other way, and put your trust in him and the work that he alone has done, and you will be saved. For the believer who knows the truth of dependence on God for salvation, the message is not too different, really. Capitulate completely to God's work in salvation, sanctification, and glorification. First, turn this truth over and over again in your minds that you are saved by God's work and God's work alone. Does that, does that not move you to praise him all the time with all that you are and all that you have? Does that not fill your heart with joy? He has given you salvation and that freely and without cost. What do you have that he has not given? You were blind and he has made you see. Where would you be without him? You were lost but he has found you. Take some time today 
and every day, maybe every time you talk to God, to humbly thank Him for His saving work in your life, for His choosing you and calling you and His giving you the new birth and letting you hear His call, recognizing that if He had not built your house, you would be laboring in vain to build it. And beyond capitulation to God's work and salvation, we ought to humble ourselves before Him in acknowledgement that our growth and holiness, our sanctification, is His work. He is building our houses. If and when we try to do it on our own, we are simply wasting our time. But if it is God at work, we are guaranteed success. And so again, the call is to humility before a mighty and amazing God. As we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we need to constantly remember that He is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. And unless He is at work in us, we are laboring in vain. This concept concept should keep us always on our knees before God, acknowledging our need, crying out for His strength, His power, His love, His courage to be at work in us and through us. This is a humbling place to be, but it's also reassuring and empowering. He is at work in us, and if He is at work in us, who can be against us? Romans 8.29 tells us that God has predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What an awesome thing. It is God who stands with us and loves us and is at work in us to make us like Jesus, to turn us all into sisters and brothers of his one and only holy and perfect son. And if God is at work in you to bring that process to completion, if the Lord is building your house, what can possibly stand in the way? Nothing, says Paul in Romans 8. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not danger, nor the sword. Because God is at work in us all these things. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. That doesn't mean that it's, it's not going to be difficult. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. In fact, it says just the opposite. It says that we will suffer. But through the suffering, nothing can stop God's work to conform us to the image of his son. So be encouraged. God is at work in you. And don't stress out. Be at peace. Remember what it says in Psalm 127 too, that he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. There's a lot we could say about that, but maybe we'll save that for another sermon. But think about it. Every day you can rest in him because bit by bit, step by step, he is with you. He is building your house. And that amazing truth that the God who built the universe would condescend to do something that we could never do for ourselves, that he would build us into the likeness of his son, ought to light such a fire of humble thanksgiving in our hearts that we should glow in the dark. That we should appear as lights, as Paul says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. Finally, we ought to be humbled by the knowledge that God is and will be at work to glorify us. Just like our sanctification, our glorification is guaranteed. As we said already in Romans 8.30, These whom he called, he justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What wonder and joy he has prepared for us in our heavenly home. It is beyond anything that we could even ask for or think of. And it is certainly far, far beyond anything that we could ever build for ourselves. That promise of an eternal house changes everything, or at least it ought to. It ought to change the way we wake up in the morning, the way we go to bed at night. It ought to change the way we drive to work the way we raise our children, the way we face adversity, the way we view each other, the way we handle interpersonal conflict, the list goes on. 
If God has given us so, so much, how much more should we seek out ways to give of ourselves to God and to others in every phase of our lives? And lastly, because we recognize that it is God who built our houses in heaven, houses not built with human hands, houses that we have received all for free, ought we not be humbly seeking to help others come to the same place where they can reap the same eternal benefit? God is building eternal mansions in glory for us, while those in the world are building cardboard shacks along the borders of hell. Shouldn't we humbly be telling them the good news, calling them to abandon their hopeless hovels and come to the knowledge of the truth that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that you are building houses for us. Lord, we humbly admit to you this morning that we don't deserve all these blessings, that we have not earned them, that we cannot buy them, but they come by your power and your power alone. We humbly admit these truths and we bow before you and we praise your name for the great work that you have done down through history, for the great work that you are doing in our lives today, and for the great work that you will accomplish. And we look forward to that day when you will come in your kingdom and we will be with you and you will be dwelling with us in your wonderful and beautiful spiritual house. And we will give you all the praise and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.